Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it. Please give us ears to hear it. And as we go out from here, please give us the will and the power by your spirit to do it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning. Poor choices, if persisted in, can have a predictable outcome. It's the classic formula for a tragedy. The downfall in the end stems from the fatal flaw in the beginning. And that was the case with Israel. A poisoned root in the beginning grew into a rotten tree that was cut down and carted away. And that's the end of the story that we looked at over the past two weeks. God's people both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, ended up being rooted, uprooted from the land that God had promised them and were sent into exile. The end of 2 Kings tells us it was because of idolatry. Once idolatry had taken hold, the people from top to bottom, from elite to common, turned further and further away from the God who had saved them from slavery until eventually they were cut off. More and more they forgot him until they finally forfeited the mission that he had given them. If they would not be a light to the nations, then God would let the Assyrians and the Babylonians snuff them out. Or would he? The beginning is the end, but the end is the beginning. The story of God's people wouldn't end in exile. They would return, chastened but they would return to the land for a fresh start, a start that would culminate in Christ, a start that would culminate in us, the church. But let's not look yet at the end. Let's look at the beginning. And yes, we're going to get to 2 Kings 4, where we will meet Elisha ministering to a nation already forgetful, already well on its way to exile. But let's set the stage first. The books of Samuel and Kings up to this point tell the story of the monarchy. At one time, the kingdom was one. King Saul was a false start, yes, but he was replaced by King David, the man after God's own heart. And the kingdom remained one under David's son, King Solomon. But it was under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that the kingdom was split into north and south. The northern kingdom would be called Israel, and the southern kingdom would be called Judah. Now, this split took place probably around the year 927 B.C., but the events surrounding Elisha that we'll look at this evening took place about 75 years after this, in the mid-800s B.C., and Elisha, and this is important, Elisha ministered to the northern kingdom, to Israel. What can we say about the northern kingdom? Remember, it's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. What can we say about the northern kingdom, Israel? Israel had power. When compared to Judah, the southern kingdom, Israel in general always fared better economically and militarily. It's like Israel was Virginia and Judah was West Virginia. And I can say that because I'm from West Virginia. <laughs> if there had been a Starbucks in the ancient world, Judah, like West Virginia, would have been the last kingdom to get a Starbucks. But West Virginia has something that Virginia doesn't. We fought on the right side in the Civil War. Is it too soon? 
But in all seriousness, Judah had something that Israel didn't have. And this was key. Judah had the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. But what was the temple for? It's complicated, and we could get easily bogged down in a lot of symbolic architecture, in elaborate rituals, in costumes that would make an Anglican's mouth water. But if you don't know anything else about the temple, just know this simple description. The temple was for the word and the table. The word and the table. That is the word and the table. The word and the table. The temple was where the priests were. And the primary job of the priests was to teach the people the law, the word, and to welcome them to the table. And yes, among all those bloody sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus that we get bogged down in and lost in and get confused by, among all of those bloody sacrifices were some sacrifices that the people could take part in, that the people could roast and eat in the presence of God. So what was the temple for? To know God and to fellowship with God, word and table. But it wasn't just this. The temple wasn't, be quiet, I'm trying to listen, go away, I'm trying to eat here. The temple was welcoming one another. The temple was fellowshipping with one another. In other words, the temple wasn't just about a restored relationship vertically with God. The word and the table of the temple also restored our relationship horizontally with one another. And as we would gather at the temple to learn love of God and love of neighbor in the law and eat together in God's presence, at his table, we would be restored, not just to God, but to one another, vertical and horizontal. But what do you do when there's no true temple? There's only false temples, and the priests are corrupt. That was the state in the northern kingdom. Ever since the split with Judah, Israel had established two major altars and an alternate priesthood to compete with the Jerusalem temple and the Levitical priests in the south. But the book of Kings tells us that the priests and the altars of the north were not inciting the people to justice, but rather to more and more forgetfulness and corruption. Word and table were not functioning well in the north. So what do you do when there's no temple? You turn to the king. The king was to be the model Israelite in heart and hands. The king was to be the one who knows justice and does justice because he knows the law. And the king was to exemplify how the law is to transform us into those who love our neighbors. But what to do when there is no such king? The archaeological evidence tells us that the Amrids, this reigning dynasty in Israel around this time that we're talking about with Elisha, this dynasty was responsible for a glorious empire, for magnificent palaces, and for great wealth. But the book of Kings paints a very different picture of Omri and Ahab and Ahaziah and Jehoram. And it's Jehoram who was king during the beginning of Elisha's ministry. The Amrid dynasty did not worship God. They did not deal justly on behalf of the people. They were not kings of word and table. So no temple, no righteous kings. Israel, the northern kingdom, was lost and exile had more or less already begun for them. But God is gracious, and God sends the prophet Elisha, 
But you can't know Elisha unless you know his predecessor, Elijah. They had very similar ministries. Ministries that, that, were, that mimicked one another. They both helped widows. They both raised children from the dead. They both reached out to Gentiles in very significant ways for the people of God. But they also had very different ministries. Elijah ministered from the outside. That is, he was usually beyond the borders of Israel. He even departed this world on the other side of the Jordan. And all of this, all this ministry of Elijah seemed to symbolize God's absence. It was like a precursor to exile. But Elisha, his successor, Elisha, who had been given a double portion of the spirit that was given to Elijah, he begins his ministry by crossing back over the Jordan, coming back into Israel to minister within Israel. In Elisha, God is with us again. In Elisha, we see a foretaste of the return from exile and beyond. And when we read of Elisha's ministry, when we look at it in the pages of, of 2 Kings, Elisha's ministry is saturated with temple imagery. He is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And later on in chapter 4, he is given his own special room to stay in. He is visited on Sabbaths and new moons. The sons of the prophets bring him their first fruits. He becomes a source of cleansing when he heals Naaman the leper. All of these things are characteristic of the temple. And so in short, what we see in Elisha is a mobile temple. A mobile temple. He is the one that people go to for the word and the table. For restoration to life on the vertical and the horizontal planes. As one writer puts it, while the faithful of Jerusalem can point to the temple and palace as concrete evidence of Yahweh's covenant and favor, the faithful of Israel can point only to a sparsely furnished upper room inhabited by an itinerant miracle worker with a receding hairline. Elisha is bald, you know, that's one of the characteristics of him. But what's the point of this? That God did not forget his people in the north. He didn't forget them, even though they were cut off from the temple in Jerusalem. God provided for them. But why a temple? Why? We've seen what the temple was for. We've seen that it was the place for the word and the table. We've seen what the word and the table were for. But let's look now at the concrete need for a temple by looking at this little case study we see here in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 reads like this. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now let's ask ourselves, how might a temple have helped in this situation? If there had been a functioning temple, the creditors might have known the principle of Psalm 146, Verse 9, which we recited together earlier. We said these words, The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. We talked about the Lord freeing those who are oppressed in that same psalm. If there had been a functioning temple, the creditors might have been held to account for the principle of Leviticus 25, the principle that you don't enslave a fellow Israelite. 
If there had been a functioning temple, someone in the extended family of this widow might have been pressed to step in as her kinsman redeemer, someone to help her with her debts and to protect her life. This was the role of Boaz, if you know the book of Ruth. Boaz stepped in to save Ruth and Naomi from poverty and from exploitation because he was the next of kin in their husband's line. He was their kinsman redeemer. In short, if there had been a functioning temple, the widow would have been saved. But there was a functioning temple. There was a functioning temple, Elisha. Elisha steps in as a kinsman redeemer. He handles the, woman, the widow's debts. He delivers her family from slavery. Elisha is a mobile temple. Elisha saves this widow. Now, of course, your mind might jump to another mobile temple, one who one-upped Elisha. Jesus was indwelt by the Spirit. Jesus taught the people. He dispensed forgiveness. He healed the sick. And what's more, his ministry was one big itinerant feast. His ministry was a ministry of word and table. His temple ministry was the source of salvation. Jesus himself was a mobile temple. What kind of salvation, though, did he bring? I would wager that most of us come from a tradition where salvation is more or less synonymous with forgiveness, with the restoration of the vertical relationship with God. Sin is a debt that we can't pay. We're enslaved to it. But Christ stepped in as our kinsman redeemer to save us. He tore the curtain of the temple in two and reconciled us to God. All of that is true. All of that is right. And that is what salvation is about. But what else did Jesus say? In Luke's gospel, which Matt read just a moment ago, we read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Christ speaking here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I want us to hear the good news of forgiveness this evening, of freedom from shame, of salvation. When we confessed our sins earlier, and when we were assured of our forgiveness, when we heard the words of Scripture assuring us of that, we hear the good news of the gospel. And I want us to hear that message in this service tonight. And I want us to hear it in the table later when we come to fellowship with God. But in this message from 2 Kings 4, I want to concentrate on the other side of that the other side of the coin. I want us to hear the message of salvation, of forgiveness, yes, but also the message of salvation that we can give to one another, that we can become a conduit of salvation one to the other. Elisha was a mobile temple. Christ was a mobile temple. And we are a mobile temple. Are we indwelt by the same Spirit? Are we empowered by the same Spirit? We, the church, are a mobile temple. Look again at this case study in 2 Kings 4, verse 1. Elisha 
Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. This widow is on the brink of economic ruin with the creditor. Relational ruin. Her sons were about to become slaves. And personal ruin. What kind of future would she have after this? Elisha, church, I'm on the brink of financial ruin, and I'm too ashamed to admit it. I'm sick, and the doctors don't know what it is, and I'm tired. I'm lonely, and there's just no end. Are these not the thoughts that we have in our hearts sometimes? Are these not the thoughts that we want to express to one another, to call out, Elisha, church, And Elisha steps in. In verse 2, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Very, very simple words, but very profound. What shall I do for you? Elisha steps in. We are Elisha. And the community steps in. Verse 3. Then he said, Elisha said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. The whole community gets to take part in the restoration of this widow. And we are that community. And then this, most importantly, God steps in. Verses 4 through 6. The little bit of oil that she has to make bread is multiplied until it fills many vessels. And then verse 7. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And the widow is saved. The widow is saved. Who saved the widow? Elisha or God? The point is that he moved, and he moved tangibly. He mobilized real people who provided real help because that's what salvation is. It was liberty for this woman and her sons. Real liberty from real slavery in this case. But who moved? Who mobilized real people? Who provided real help here? God or Elisha? Both. Yes, both. God moved because he had already made Elisha a temple. And if you like, he was moving Elisha the whole time, from start to finish, acting through Elisha. And Elisha moved because he knew he was a temple. He knew he was acting out salvation. He knew that he was bringing salvation in a real tangible way to this woman. And we are a temple too, appointed by God to give money to each other, to speak to each other, to comfort each other, and to love each other, to meet each other in whatever crisis we might find ourselves in, however little, however great. We are God's mobile temple to save each other in this sense. And it's not as if we're detracting from Christ in that. We are just simply being his body. We become a conduit of salvation one to the other. Because we live out this truth. That salvation isn't just the vertical reconciliation with God. But it's how we can be reconciled with each other. And it's how we can help each other. There are needs, there are crises right here among us. That. Sometimes we're afraid to speak. But I want to encourage you to speak those crises. 
to go to your brothers and sisters and to say, church, help, what can I do? And then let someone say, what do you want me to do for you? What can I do for you? We can do that for one another. Paul talks about that in Galatians. It's from the passage that we read earlier. He says, be eager to do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We can practice on one another, being a source of salvation to one another, and then go out and bring that salvation to the world. God did not leave his people without a temple. Elisha was a mobile temple. Christ was a mobile temple. And we, the body of Christ, are the mobile temple today. And just as the church is empowered to carry the message of restoration to God, we're also empowered to carry that restoration on the horizontal plane with one another. So let's be aware of one another and let's be available to one another and let's be the temple of tangible ministry to one another and to the world by the power of the Spirit. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please kneel or be seated as you are able, and let us pray for the church.